We start off with um, Handley, Play- Handley Page Limited, 60 Years of Achievements, um, presented to us by Harry Fraser Mitchell, who was a former aerodynamicist. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to talk to you about uh, Handley Page Achievements, and hopefully this uh, device will work. There we are. That's the logo that HP had for 60 years in various forms, but that's, that's more or less the form it finished up in. And uh, 60 years of achievement. Well, it's convenient to, in fact, split the uh, 60 years into six decades, and that, that's more or less how I'm going to do it. Uh, let me say, first of all, I'd like to dedicate this to uh, the people, past and present, who were in Hanley Page and who brought about these achievements. Uh, I do have a, a lot of uh, help, uh, have had a lot of help to prepare this, uh, in particular from the Hanley Page Association. I've raided their archives uh, quite considerably. I've had help from the librarian here at Ham- Hamilton Place and uh, also the National Archive, um, which was uh, quite enlightening. Uh, because of the constraints of time, I won't say much about Handley Page Reading. Uh, it's in, there's something in my written paper which will say something about them, but uh, we're a bit, a bit tight for time. I'm going to try and show how in the six decades the firm was going, uh, they always had innovative designs and uh, uh, sometimes right at the forefront of the, um, uh, of, of the game. Uh, I must say, incidentally, uh, that uh, I'm very grateful to our chairman, Kit Mitchell, in helping me through the vagaries of PowerPoint presentations to a, a computer illiterate like me. It was quite eye-opening. So let's hope it all works. So that's the, that's the title, and there's the man. I'm not going to say too much about him, uh, because it's about the company rather than the man, but uh, he uh, was born, as was said, at Cranham Villa, Kings Road, Cheltenham. 15th of November, 19, uh, sorry, 1885. He was the second son of Frederick Page and Eliza Handley, uh, hence the Handley Page. Uh, his father was an upholsterer and he didn't want to go into that. He, he broke away from the family and went to London and was uh, educated technically at uh, Finsbury Technical College where he studied electrical engineering. Uh, he looked to be have, he looked to have quite a good um, prospects as an electrical engineer, but the aviation bug had bitten, and uh, he eventually uh, left uh, electrical engineering and uh, started his own firm, uh, a little tiny business uh, in Woolwich. Uh, he graduated in, in 1906 quite well, and in 1907 he joined the Aero Society. He wasn't royal then. Now, uh, it's been mentioned about Hanley Page being the first aircraft company, and uh, uh, I think one can defend it. Uh, Shorts were a partnership. There was another firm called the Aerospace Syndicate, uh, got together by Horatio Barber, uh, but um, that was a week earlier. But um, they didn't make their own design. They were made by Howard Wright. And in any case, HP bought him up about three years later. Okay. Well... This was his first aeroplane, and there he is sitting in the cockpit with his hat the other way around, as, uh, of course, was uh, to show that he was the pilot. Um, he didn't pilot it very well. It was called Bluebird, but it didn't have very many bird-like uh, 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 attitudes because it uh, kept crashing. 
after the third or fourth time, he decided that his skin was more valuable to the company uh, than his piloting ability, so he uh, decided not to go flying, and uh, he employed pilots. So you, you now know why he had pilots. Um, this was his first successful aeroplane, the Type E. Uh, that was the Type A. Uh, that's the Type E, and um, uh, I've got the date here somewhere, 19, 1912, April 1912. Two-seater, as you say, as you see, because he insisted that the front cockpit could be carried, uh, could be carrying fair-paying passengers. So he had the right idea right from square one. Uh, it was very successful. It had wing warping to start with, and uh, later on it became the first Hanley Page airplane to have ailerons, and that improved the handling quite a bit. Notice the shape of the wing. This was a patent by one Jose Ruiz, who was actually a landscape painter, uh, but had studied soaring birds in the Austrian Tyrol, and he'd invented this wing. Now, Jose was no engineer, uh, but HP was, and the two got along quite well. And HP was allowed to use the Wies wing, and I don't think any money changed hands for the patent. I think Wies was a bit put out by that, but, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was um, uh, won over by HP's charm. This one was the uh, uh, Type F, following that, also the same sort of wing. Uh, it had a slightly bigger gnome, uh, but the thing about this is that side-by-side -side seating, and this chap in sitting in fr standing in front was a naval lieutenant, uh, uh, Wilfred Park, who uh, uh, used to fly these things just for the fun of it. He wasn't allowed to be paid, and of course this was very attractive to HP, who didn't have any money anyway. <laughs> uh, why I brought that in is that it, uh, it crashed in December 1913, uh, while it's being assessed as a naval scout. And it killed Park and also Arco Hardwick, who was HP's manager at the time. And these first fatalities so affected HP that um, he resolved that he would try and find a cure for this stall spin syndrome, which was the cause of the disaster. And he started work almost immediately in his own wind tunnel and eventually succeeded some years later. Well, monoplanes were out of fashion after this crash and the crash of various other aeroplanes. Uh, and so HP decided he better look at biplanes. And so here we have his first biplane. This was the G100. It had a 100 horsepower Anzani. And it was also the first aeroplane he actually sold. Uh, the pilot, Roland Ding, and uh, this occasion was when he'd been chartered by his passenger, who was Princess Lohens, I think it's Lohenstein Wertheim. She was a rich lady. She hired him to take her across the channel to Paris. Well, they were delayed by fog, but they did get across the channel, but she went on by train once they got across. <laughs> However, she was so impressed that uh, she decided that she and Ding uh, would try and go for the Daily Mail transatlantic prize, 10,000 uh, pounds. And uh, so she sent a check to HP to reserve, you know, to get him going and reserve a place and all the rest of it. Uh, she changed her mind a couple of days later, but it was too late. He'd already cashed the check. <laughs> but it was valuable in that uh, the work that went into the airplane that he designed, which was a Type L, uh, we believe it was built, but there's no drawings or anything else. Um, but uh, 
we believe it was built, and uh, unfortunately, the World War I got in the way, and uh, all the aero engines were taken over, so the thing was just dismantled. So it never happened, probably just as well. Uh, but it gave him the expertise in how to design large airplanes, and when uh, RNAS uh, decided they wanted a, a big patrol bomber, uh, they came to him. This was what he, he got for them. Uh, this, was, uh, this is actually the 0400, which was a development of the 0100, which was the earlier aeroplane. And uh, that was a, by the time it had finished its development, it was a, a, a pretty potent weapon of war. It, uh, it fast uh, exceeded the specification requirements, and it, it even carried a 2,000-pound bomb in America. And uh, something like 550 of them were built uh, in various places, uh, also in America, and uh, uh, it was a really a very successful airplane. It had two Rolls-Royce Eagles, nominally 400 horsepower, and uh, uh, it didn't go very fast, but uh, it, it, you could say it was the first strategic bomber, I think. But even bigger than that, I think it was a 126-foot wingspan, is the V-1500, which had four engines. Uh, there were tandem, either side, and uh, it uh, was designed to bomb Berlin. In fact, three of them were ready and waiting at Bircham Newton when the armistice was signed, which was uh, perhaps a disappointment. But uh, uh, <laughs> something like uh, 60 of them were built. This particular one is sitting at Cricklewood Airfield, just about to take off on a flight inspired by HP's birthday. He'd invited a part of the journalists, journalists to come and look around Cricklewood which is where his factory was. And on the spur of a moment, when he was told that one of these airplanes were ready for flight test, he said, oh, let's all go for a flight. So he packed them into the fuselage, standing room only, you know, it, uh, you know there were no seats, or just seats at the front. And uh, uh, I think he must have been a little bit nervous himself, because when his secretary said that she hadn't flown before, she said, oh, we, will have, we used to have my seat. <laughs> so he, say, he stayed on the ground while they went over London. <laughs> But it was sort of an official record with, with 40 passengers, uh, 15th of November 1918, that was. But after the war, of course, it was very difficult. And uh, HP decided that civil aircraft should have a, a, a place in the market. So he took his 0400s and he took out the bracing wires in the fuselage and he replaced them by these tubes and put in some, some wicker chairs, you know, straight out of uh, Bombay, uh, Jim Carner Club or somewhere. And uh, they were used quite widely and quite successfully. He formed his own airline, Handley Page Transport Limited, in order to do it. And I think he made his first flight on the second day that civil aircraft flying was permitted. So he, uh, he was quick off the mark. But it didn't last all that long because he knew that it was only an interim type and that he'd have to do something better than that. So he got his designers, Volkert and STA Richards, Stanley Richards, uh, to design a purpose-built airline. And this is what they came up with. This was a Type W. Uh, it had a mixture of V-1500 and O-400. It had uh, constant, as you can see, constant span wings, uh, top and bottom, 75 foot. And uh, those wings went through the whole of the W series. They had different fuselages, but... Uh, uh, those wings were pretty well unchanged throughout the whole series. It went on for a long time. 
Uh, it was very successful. It had two Lion engines um, borrowed from the Air Ministry because HP couldn't afford to buy them. So he borrowed them and uh, it, it, it went like a dingbat apparently. Uh, so much so that the Air Force decided they'd like to have a bomber version. And there it is, called the Hyderabad. And uh, it was the same wings, just a different fuselage. Simplified fuselage, actually. So that was the sort of thing that, that went on in those days. Uh, it wasn't the end. Here you see some further developments. This was a three-engine version. had a big engine in the middle and two smaller engines either side. The theory being that it could uh, stay in level flight uh, with any one engine out. Um, this was a, another military development. Uh, it was a Hinedi, very much like a Hyderabad, except that now, for the first time, HP had air-cooled radial engines. And uh, I think uh, the Handy Page philosophy, certainly Volker's philosophy, was to go to air-cooled engines wherever possible. Uh, he didn't always achieve it, unfortunately. This was a, a, a quick fix for Imperial Airways, who found they were short of space. They'd taken over Handy Page Transport Limited, and um, they, they needed something rather quickly. So they placed an order with HPs for three of these uh, to be delivered within a year. And uh, I think HP made it by the skin of his teeth. Uh, what he did was he took the fuselage and wings and tail of the Hineidi, which was in full production, and just put a new nose on it. And uh, so that's one way of getting cheap and cheerful, rather quick airplanes. But it seemed to be quite successful. In fact, the whole series, there was 116 variants altogether of the W series, uh, which really took them through a rather difficult time. I want to in introduce Victor Gustav Lachmann, uh, who is uh, a co-discoverer of the aerodynamic stop, as you will hear later. And uh, he was, uh, uh, he had great influence on the company. I say he was a co-discoverer of the slot. The, the two men got together in Berlin uh, to uh, exploit uh, the device. Instead of fighting, they collaborated. HP supported Lachmann uh, in research at uh, Göttingen, and uh, eventually Lachmann came over in 1922. Uh, uh, sorry, he was a consultant in 22. He came over full-time in 29 and remained with the firm for the rest of his life. Well, uh, very nearly the rest of his life. He retired in 65 and died, I think, a year or two later. Uh, he, as I say, he had a great influence on Hanley Page, uh, not only for his work on the slot, but also on... Uh, other research topics. For instance, he designed a new wing, a monoplane wing, which HP used, and he did uh, uh, the, the pot and boom concept, which was used on the Hamden. He was a very bright, um, ingenious man, uh, rather standoffish when you first met him, but once you got to know him, he was a very warm character, very well-rounded, and his staff absolutely were devoted to him. And the ideas that came out of his research department, where his second-in-command was uh, Brian Edwards, who was also a brilliant man, uh, they came out with some brilliant ideas and uh, really helped the firm along no end. Well, one of the things, I'm not going to say too much about this because I know you've got a, a much better lecturer coming up, but um, what he showed in the wind tunnel was if you put a slat in front of the wing and you see contemporary sections there, you could virtually double the lift, but at a much bigger angle of attack. And then he showed that if you put a slot in here and, and droop the trailing edge, that would move back to there, which was a much 
more handleable angle of attack. And that was a, that was a major discovery. And uh, in fact, I think it was C.G. Gray said that it was an important uh, to the aviation industry as the pneumatic tire was to the automobile industry. And you're probably not far short. You see them, of course, every day now on every airliner. And as H.P. was re remarked in 1960, when Lachman said, you know, it's been going for 40 years now, H.P. turned around rather wistfully and said, yes, but Lachman, the patents have expired. <laughs> <laughs> he proved his ideas in flight with this, which was a, a war surplus DH-9. Uh, just put, as you can see, some fixed slats on it and flew that down to 38 miles an hour, which is pretty good. But perhaps the thing that people remember is this one, which was designed for the Guggenheim Safety Competition, hence his name Gugnunk. Uh, people of my age will remember Pipsqueak and Wilfred, I'm sure. But um, this was a sort of favorite expression. Uh, but uh, the party piece on this, uh, Jim Cords, who was a pilot, used to um, start up inside the hangar. And by the time he reached the open hangar doors, uh, he was airborne. So that was quite, quite a trick. Well, the next decade really was the end of the biplane and the beginning of the monoplane. And it uh, wasn't quite the end of the biplane because um, Volkert came up with this airplane in response to Spec B 1927. Uh, rather curious uh, layout, but it's designed to be as low a drag as possible you could get on a biplane. So he moved the fuselage up to the front, up to the top, of the, the, put the top wing on it, and had a big space underneath so that there wouldn't be any interference with the upper surface. And uh, as you can see, it had big spatted wheels and things like that. And it was reckoned to be the most efficient uh, biplane bomber in RAF service. Curiously enough, uh, its uh, opponent, or its uh, contemporary opponent anyway, was the Ferry Hendon, which was a monoplane, and you'd think it ought to do better. But it didn't, unfortunately. It was uh, a good deal worse. Surprising. Uh, they built 124 of those, and uh, in fact, they were still in service at the start of World War II in a sort of minor way. Uh, one of the minor claims to fame is that one of these airplanes was used to test the first of uh, 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 attempts at radar detection from uh, Troy Twitch, was it? I can't remember exactly. Anyway, as I say, the biplane was supposed to have gone. It wasn't quite, because uh, this was Volkert's answer to an Imperial Airways very detailed specification for their prime airliner. And uh, this, of course, is the famous HP-42. Um, it was uh, very comfortable, very large, very quiet, uh, and very slow. Uh, but it was, there was only eight built, but it was a sort of the, the queen of the skies, rather like the, the queen ships across the Atlantic. And uh, it was the way to go, you know, and uh, uh, they, they had fabulous service, these airplanes. Um, the uh, total fleet mileage, and one of them burnt up at Karachi hangar uh, halfway through its life. But the total fleet mileage, uh, it says here, was exceeded 2.3 million up to 1939. And uh, Heracles, which was one of them, uh, was used almost exclusively to go across to Paris and at lunch, where you could have a, a four-course lunch served uh, en route. Uh, that was the first aircraft in commercial service to exceed a million miles. 
and it went on and achieved another quarter of a million uh, by the start of World War II. None of the aeroplanes survived World War II. Uh, they were pretty, pretty old and pretty flimsy, and they were used to be uh, used to being mollycoddled in hangars, and of course they weren't during the war. The uh, monoplane there is the Harrow, designed in a hurry, and a hundred produced in something like two years, um, purely and simply because of the rearmament program. It was recognized it was semi-obsolescent. It did have this modern wing, designed mainly by Lachman, and it had a modern engine, uh, but it still had spatted wheels, and uh, it still had uh, tube and fabric construction in the fuselage. But it was a good stopgap. It, it was a good stall aeroplane, so they used it for Kazivak during the war. One of the few aeroplanes that could get in and out of uh, you know, the tight fields and things like that. But the real war effort was in the Hamden, and there you see Larkman's pod and boom uh, uh, technology coming to the fore. Again, a modern wing, modern engines, retractable undercarriage for the first time, um, which caused some problems, I gather, when it was first introduced. And uh, it was fast. It was designed to be as fast as the biplane fighters of its day, 250 miles an hour. Uh, but, of course, it was easy meat for, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, single-engine uh, monoplane fighters. And it didn't have much armament, like none of them had in those days. And uh, it was, it was uh, quite easy meat, I think. But they used it as a bomber and also much more as a mine layer and as a torpedo aircraft. And um, something like 1,500 were built, uh, not all at Hanley Page. Uh, it brought English Electric back into the business of aircraft building. And uh, that was uh, a signal achievement. The main work, of course, was the Halifax, and this is the first prototype with Merlin engines. Volker didn't like Merlin engines. He hated them. Uh, but he couldn't get Hercules. They were already uh, on the Sterling. So he had to put up with uh, four Merlins. It was originally designed for vultures, but the vulture was not a successful engine. It was in the Manchester and giving trouble in the Manchester. So he had to go to four Merlins. And unfortunately, they were also the lower power Merlins, because the higher power ones were kept for fighters. But nevertheless, it was quite an aeroplane. The early, early aircraft were definitely underpowered, but the later ones, as we'll see in a minute, with Hercules engines, uh, were a match for the Lancaster, or even exceeded in some occasions. I've mentioned this little aeroplane, HP-75 Manx. And uh, the reason was that uh, it flew more or less the same. Well, it tried to fly, but that, uh, it couldn't get it off the ground at first. Uh, at the same time as this, this was October 1939, and very shortly afterwards they tried to get that one flying, but they couldn't. It was a research aeroplane uh, looking into swept wings. And uh, uh, it was driven by two pusher propellers. And it was designed by Lachman, but he was then interned so it was taken over by Godfrey Lee, uh, and he got it flying over about the next three, four years, and uh, flying quite well. And it said, and he said himself, that it gave him the confidence uh, to know that he could get a swept wing flying reasonably well. Uh, after the war, uh, we had swords into plowshares, if you like. There's a Hercules engine to Halifax. That's actually uh, the one with 126 uh, missions. 
they were used in all over the place, 6,000 altogether, including some for BOAC, for their African roots, and they used that for a few years. But at the same time, HP had asked for uh, the company to look at a Lincoln replacement, and Godfrey Lee came up with this rather sort of futuristic uh, looking thing with jet engines and a high Mark number wing. So that was his original design in 1947, which eventually, of course, became the Victor, which I'll talk about briefly in a moment. But post-war, of course, we needed transports, and HP came up with this. It was modified, um, developed Hanley Page wings and a, a, a large uh, circular body. This was a Hastings. 150 were built, and um, its first flight was May 46, and its first real work in the Air Force, you could even say its sort of uh, trial period, was the Berlin airlift. So they, they really tried very hard. There's a great story about that. Uh, obviously, they tried to get a, a civil version, but BOAC uh, wanted nosewheel aircraft, which was quite a big change from this one, which is the tailwheel aircraft. And so there was, there was quite a lot, and of course, full pressurization. So this was a Hermes 4, used by BOAC on their African routes. They didn't like it very much, and uh, sold them off to the independents, who uh, used them for inclusive tours and things like this, and made a bomb. Uh, why BOAC didn't, I don't know, but there we are. There was a turboprop version, the first handy page turboprop version of that, which, which used uh, a very nice airplane, a very big, comfortable, fast, but unfortunately, it had Bristol Cecius engines, which were a pain in the, the what's-it. And uh, they, uh, uh, they only built two of them. It was a great shame. If that had had decent engines, it would have been a great car. But this decade, 49-59, was really the year of the, of the Victor. And you see there the first prototype, some of the innovative ideas. You've got the crescent wing, which was designed to cruise at 0.875 mark. Uh, and yet be handleable at low speed. It had these nose flaps to help that out. It had large trailing edge flaps uh, to slow the thing down. It had air brakes, which were extremely successful in controlling the flight path, particularly during landing. And it had a high tail, which set, the, set really the, the vogue for the day, although it was a very mixed blessing. Uh, you can't see it here, but in here are multi-wheel, I think 16-wheel, bogey undercarriage, which again was a first. That was the prototype. Uh, this was the production B Mark I, very like the prototype, slightly longer nose, slightly lower tail, and uh, something like 50 of those were, were ordered. Um, it was the only V bomber to exceed the speed of sound, and we have the man here who did it. And uh, it was also, I think, the only V bomber that could carry and drop 35 1,000-pound bombs. Uh, what a pity they didn't use it for Stanley Airfield, but there we are. The, the Vulcan only carried 21, I think. So they had 50% more chance of hitting the thing. It was succeeded by the Mark II, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, the, obviously, you know, HP tried very hard to get a civil version going. Never succeeded. Uh, BOAC weren't interested. Uh, the, the wry joke at the time was that BOAC stands for Boeing Only Aircraft Considered. Right. There we are. This was the nearest he got to it, which is the HP 111, strategic transport, based on a Mark II. And uh, it won the design competition for the RAF heavy lift transport. Unfortunately, HP 
hadn't and wouldn't uh, combine with uh, other people, and it was vetoed on political grounds, uh, which was a shame because the Air Force then had to make do with the short Belfast, which they didn't really want. They only ordered in penny numbers and didn't last very long. The, um, this, uh, the refusal of that order, plus the refusal of the vetoing of the order for military heralds, uh, I think was really the death knell of the firm. And uh, the firm really never recovered. Anyway, a little bit about the Mark II. There it is, carrying blue steel. And uh, again, a very successful aeroplane. Uh, it, um, one version, the SR version, the Strategic Reconnaissance version, took part in the Daily Mail Air Race, Transatlantic Air Race, and uh, won its class, uh, traveling at, I think, 0.93. It says here, when I asked the pilot if he really did travel at 9-3, he said he, squad he was a squadron commander and couldn't admit to going faster <laughs> because it said 9-3 on the, on, the, on, the, on the card. I suspect he went a bit faster. But uh, it, it, it did go across at about 0.93 and unrefueled. Quite a, quite a good performance. Um, 34 airplanes were delivered, but 28 were cancelled as an economy measure, and that was really the death blow to the firm. Uh, we'll hear how in a moment. Um, the other thing that happened was that uh, um, there was a proposal to convert some of these, uh, all of these, into, into tanker aircraft, as was done on the Mark I when the Valiant had to be withdrawn. But the government kept saying, well, you know, we're not quite happy with this or that, and this didn't like this paragraph or that paragraph, and they just delayed matters until the firm ran out of money. Uh, it was then given, uh, the contract was then given to Hawker Siddeley, uh, who it is suggested, I don't know whether it's true, uh, the airplane cost three times as much and took a lot longer, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that might, that might just be a biased Hanley Page man talking. But faced with the government intransigent, uh, they fell back, the company fell back on the jet stream, uh, a little turboprop commuter, and uh, started on that. But um, it was a good design. It was designed to full transport category, but released at a lower category, which gave it a very, uh, because it arbitrarily limited the all-up weight, it gave it a very poor range payload performance, and uh, the company didn't uh, complete uh, the contract in looking at the, uh, the higher category version of it, and also the USAF, uh, who ordered the C-10A based on the jet stream. Uh, neither of those could be finished before the company went bust. Now, why didn't the company merge uh, before the collapse? And in fact, merger talks had taken place between FHP and uh, uh, the uh, Hawker Siddeley Group, um, on the basis of 16 shillings a share. Uh, the shares were, I think, 13 shillings at that point. But Hawker Siddeley would only offer 10. And uh, HP felt that 16 shillings was the, the least that the uh, uh, shareholders would accept. Um, in, uh, that was September in 1960. In November, uh, HSA stated they had an overdraft of 32 million pounds. I got most of this from the National Archive, uh, so I couldn't afford to buy HP anyway. Um, they asked Her Majesty's Government to underwrite, underwrite her short-term loan so they could close the price, but uh, uh, 
one of the reasons behind that was the RAF had preferred the Herald over the 748 uh, for their uh, tactical transport. Uh, and therefore, you know, the ministry was saying, well, you know, come on, Avros, you better, you better buy this up. But Avros didn't. And, of course, we got the inevitable veto, political veto, and the order, which was for 45 Heralds, went over to the 748. And uh, that was a pity, but there it is. In June 1963, after Sir Frederick had died, he died in 62, uh, negotiations were opened via S.G. Warburg for Hawker Siddeley. Uh, and they recommended uh, a share a basis of takeover for eight and tuppence a share. Um, the trading was at ten and thruppence. 10 and at the time. Well, H.P. Uh, uh, said they couldn't accept that, and Arnold Hall, Arnold Hall, who had just taken over Hawker Sidley Group, said, well, we can only offer five shillings, because otherwise I have to close factories. And of course, that was anathema to the government of the day. Uh, however, the council victors, uh, uh, there was a large compensation claim that H.P. had put in, um, and which would have virtually closed the price but uh, Julian Amory, who was a minister at the time, only offered half as much, and uh, that wasn't enough. Uh, eventually, in August 1969, the receivers, K.R. Cork, were called in. Uh, the debts were 14 million at that point, and uh, an American firm, K.R. Cravens, uh, took over the, 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 jet, the everything but the jet stream, and, uh, no, sorry, including the jet stream, and... Um, Unfortunately, their leader was uh, stricken with terminal illness and uh, the whole thing folded. And in the last day of February, 1970, we were all made redundant, which was perhaps a good thing for some of us. But uh, uh, that was the end of the firm. The jet stream carried on for a bit and, uh, in fact, was very successful in other hands. Well, I'll say something about that in a minute. Let me just finish, finish in the next... 10 minutes, I hope I've got 10 minutes, uh, to talk about some of the other things. Laminar flow, we'll hear a lot about this later, so I won't say very much. This was a vampire which had a glove on it, and uh, that was quite successful. It showed full cord laminar flow. This was a Lancaster, an ex-aeronaval Lancaster, PA-474, which is now in the Battle of Britain flight. That had a, a swept wing uh, built on, and flew uh, as a fin. And that was quite successful. Finally, the HP company proposed uh, uh, a demonstrator called the HP113. That wasn't accepted, but uh, the government gave a contract to uh, de Havilland, or Hawke Siddeley, uh, to convert a DH125 with a, uh, a laminar flow wing as a demonstrator. And there you see the two models. There's the laminar flow wing, there's the 125 wing. Um, notice that HP was a subcontractor there. Uh, we weren't allowed to get uh, a proper order. Uh, it was quite successful, the, the uh, feasibility study, but um, in fact uh, uh, not gone through with because the people who assessed it said that, uh, yes, it's all perfectly reasonable, but not worth going ahead and spending £2 million if you're not going to do a laminar for an airliner. Well, the whole object of the exercise was to prove some of the engineering difficulties to see if an airliner was worth going for. So it was a, didn't seem to us a very helpful argument. But there it is. A couple of things on production development. Uh, 
HP was quite innovative. He uh, got going this uh, dispersed production idea where you build large components and equip them uh, away from the, the, the line and then brought them together at the last minute. Uh, this was assisted by something which dear to Volker's heart. He was a very good photographer. And this was a photographic means of producing uh, jig templates uh, time after time with absolute accuracy so they could be sent out to other places. Um, uh, and you knew they, they, you know, there weren't any errors. Uh, HP also, in the Victor, produced uh, a form of corrugated uh, construction for wing structure. This was spot welded, which I think was the first time ever on uh, sort of main structure uh, for uh, big airplanes. And that was introduced on the Victor. Again, I think it was quite successful. HP had a lot of test facilities. It had this huge uh, test ring, which is bigger than the cathedral at Farnborough. Uh, you can see a, there's a Victor fuselage and inner wing inside it. Uh, it had this centrifuge, uh, which was out at the edge of the airfield, uh, to check out the effects of acceleration on uh, things like fuel uh, tanks and things like that. And it also was, I think, in this country, a prime mover on flutter models. Uh, they weren't the first to do it. I think it was actually uh, originated in Germany during the war. Uh, but HP's uh, got very good at it. And here you can see there's a, a, a Trident uh, tailplane being uh, prepared for flutter models. Uh, there's an amusing story, which I, I hope I've got time to say. Um, these things, those stripes there, are actually uh, very thin rubber holding uh, apart uh, boxes of balsa, which uh, give you the aerodynamic form. Well, it was found that the best material available was actually a condom. And uh, you can imagine the fairly staid 50-year-old uh, Bob Hounsfield, uh, head of the wind tunnel, uh, going into his local chemist shop in Radlett and asking for a gross of their larger size. <laughs> I, I don't know what he put on his expense account. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's one of, the, one of the more amusing things that happened. Like everybody else, HP had a lot of projects. This is an interesting one, because that was proposed by Volkert in 1937 uh, as an unarmed, fast bomber. It wasn't highly regarded by the uh, people at the time, because they said, no, no, what you need is large fleets of bombers, uh, heavily defended and all the rest of it. Volkert said, no, that what you need is a lot of these with no armament, very light, carrying 3,000 pounds of bombs, and going everywhere very fast. 380 miles an hour. No, no, yeah, won't be done. So it was shelved, but not forgotten because a couple of years later, de Havilland came up with a Mosquito, which was, of course, a highly successful airplane. And incidentally, the top speed of at least the first of the Mosquitoes was 380 miles an hour, which was, uh, you know, quite something. HPs went into supersonics in a big way. This was 1955, uh, the HP 100 uh, supersonic bomber well, reconnaissance bomber. Uh, it was the, one of the first, I think, to espouse a slender delta wing. And uh, it was uh, rejected uh, because people then thought, 1955, people then thought the low-speed qualities of the delta wing were, were not acceptable. Of course, we show only a few years later uh, that they were perfectly acceptable. Uh, it's a pity 
but uh, it didn't get the order. Avro did get the order, but unfortunately for them, uh, it was cancelled almost immediately. So yeah, it, it was a sad time for all. This is an interesting project. Um, it was a short-range uh, airliner, uh, Airbus. It was part of the uh, Airbus, um, uh, I suppose you could call it a, a committee. And uh, you can see it was a sort of, a sort of blended wing airliner, uh, which uh, may or may not have worked. This was probably one of the ultimate uh, laminar flow airplanes. You can see an all-wing airplane. The cockpit had a little suction slot behind it. Later, later version had a, a fuselage that came out there, uh, also with a suction slot behind it. And uh, as you can see, uh, the payload was spread across the wing in the best possible fashion. But we'll probably hear more about that uh, later. So to finish off, what happened to Hanley Page aircraft after 1970? Well, the Victor went on, became a tanker, uh, Hawker Siddeley did it. They made various changes. Uh, I think uh, not all for the best, but uh, it was the best as far as they were concerned because they were obviously wanting to keep the changes uh, as simple as possible. Um, the uh, HP proposal had wingtip tanks, like rather like the 111 I showed you, um, but that was that was rejected, and uh, they did that. Um, you might uh, the the Victors were withdrawn in 1993, but you might say they still strive to fly. If you saw the news uh, the other day, you see a Victor unintentionally taking off. Um, another aircraft, of course, was the Jetstream. Uh, a, a little consortium of ex-HP people kept it going for a few years after HP's collapse, but then uh, Scottish Aviation, who was a subcontractor, uh, took over and uh, got an order for I think it was 25 airplanes for the Royal Air Force. And um, once they joined BAE, they convinced BAE it was a good airplane to go with, and they produced this, which is uh, very much, of course, that, but with Garrett engines, which is the same engine as we had on the uh, USAF C-10A. Uh, and that's been very successful. Uh, I'm told over 400 have been built and sold, which is... Uh, very good indeed. Um, this is an airplane which still aviates in the Royal Navy, the Jetstream T2, uh, to be used for, uh, as a navigation trainer. So, to finish the main achievements of the company, I've, I've selected ten of them. We heard the first limited company, that's arguable, but I think defendable. Mass production of large bombers, well certainly, there are many, many uh, 550 built in World War I. We'll hear more about that in a lecture later. I've told you about the, the W range of airliners. Dispersed production, I told you about that as well. That was extremely important during the war because we had all sorts of funny companies. Uh, you know, little garage, back, back workshops, you know, were building bits of uh, Halifax. 1500 Hamdens. Uh, as I say, the important thing there was it brought English Electric back into the fold. 150 Hastings, 20 years they went on. They, uh, somebody said there was a million and a half miles or something in the, in the fleet. Quite extraordinary. A million passengers. Victor V. Bomber, well, we'll hear about that in a minute. Jetstream, as I say, a winner in other hands. And this, when the last Jetstream came out of service in 97, 
It's completed a period of 86 years uh, of continuous achievement, uh, uh, continuous uh, service in the Royal Air Force, uh, right from the day it was founded. So there we have it. Uh, there's the man. This was a. Uh, this is a, a painting which is in the uh, hall of Aerospace Hall of Fame at uh, San Diego, and you see there's the man, copied I think from the portrait in that we have here, uh, with his first bomber and his last bomber. Thank you very much.